Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, February 17th, 2023. In this week's episode, the prosecution is winding down their case in the murder trial of Alex Murdoch, charged with the murders of his wife and son, as well as a new federal trial facing former Kentucky police officer Brett Hankinson for his part in the raid that killed Breonna Taylor. And finally, the trial of Mark Jensen, who's been convicted for the 1998 murder of his wife, Julie, after his previous conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court. Today, we are joined by Rachel Kaufman, a criminal defense attorney recognized as one of Atlanta's top trial lawyers. Rachel is also a legal analyst you can catch on Court TV and many other outlets. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. So good to be here. Um, Before we jump into these cases, and I know you've been following them closely and you have some interesting thoughts I can't wait to get to, tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice. Okay, so um, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia for law school, graduated from Emory Law in 2012. Uh, For a few years, I worked for a DUI firm. And while I was at that DUI firm, I happened to become, become connected with an individual who was charged with murder. And I went from trying DUIs to trying this murder case. Um, and that's a, that's quite a quite a leap. You know, only, only somebody who is um, really naive uh, and who has not been in, in the game that long would think that that would be like a normal thing to do and just to do it. But then I won. And so what happened was from there, I started my own law firm and I deal with mostly violent felony, high stakes, uh, high stakes matters. I used to go to wow. trial more since COVID. Yeah. I've gone a little bit less, but. Yeah, so that's so I work for myself. I'm sort of um, I'm a one stop shop. I have one cell phone for my. I have no boundaries basically. I've you know my family calls the same phone that my potential clients call. Um, right. When you call, when you call, you're going to talk to me. And I just I I try to run a more holistic practice where I'm really interested in my clients' best interests long term. I really don't like repeat clients because I really want them to like you know get out of the. Succeed, get out yeah, of the, the spiral. Yeah, I'm not trying to make money off of people continuing to do bad things. Right. Um, yes. And not that everybody who's charged with, you know, something bad does something bad, but I'm just, you know, in the scheme of things, I'm also about accountability. And sometimes accountability doesn't look like what the prosecutor often wants it to look like, especially in Georgia. Um, they're so desensitized to 
I don't know what what punishment should be about, which I believe it should be about restoration if that's you know an option or if they're coming back to society. And in Georgia, it's just like how many years can we give them? So right, we're right. fighting the fight down here in, in Atlanta. I like it, and you're in the thick of it. It sounds like. Um, well, we would invite you to bring all of that uh, experience and expertise to these cases. So let's jump right in. Uh, the first one I know that you've been following closely. We're going to. Walterboro, South Carolina, where after presenting 500 pieces of evidence and over 50 witnesses, the state is expected to rest their case in the murder trial of Alex Murdoch. Murdoch stands accused of the 2021 murders of his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. The jury heard testimony on Wednesday, February 15th from the lead investigator in the case, David Owen, and saw footage from Murdoch's third interview with authorities in which Murdoch became the lead suspect in the case. In the interview, the interviewer asked Murdoch outright if he killed his son and wife before raising questions about Murdoch's location at the time of the murders. Murdoch has maintained that he was asleep at the alleged time of the murders and that he visited his sick mother before returning to the family's sprawling hunting property where he found his wife and son dead. However, prosecutors allege that Murdoch can be seen in a Snapchat video, this has become very important, taken from his son's phone hours before the killings, in which Alex is seen wearing different clothes than those he wore when officers responded to his 911 call. In cross-examination, Murdoch's defense questioned the investigator about genetic evidence from an unknown man that was found under Maggie Murdoch's fingernails. Very interesting. Murdoch's defense has alleged that the murders of Paul and Maggie may have been related to a financial dispute between a drug-dealing gang and Murdoch's co-conspirator and drug dealer, Curtis Smith. This line of questioning prompted the judge to allow evidence of an insurance fraud scam between Murdoch and Smith that the judge had previously ruled against. Uh, Murdoch has admitted to his part, part in the scheme, confessing he hired Smith to kill him in an attempt to give him uh, his surviving son a $10 million life insurance policy. The plan uh, hit, ran afoul when the shot fired at Murdoch only grazed his head. A lot going on here with this guy. Um, Rachel, I know you've been following this case closely, and I know you have some interesting thoughts about it. But tell me first, what, what do you think about it so far as far as how the prosecution has done? Do you think they've done enough to secure a conviction here? Or do you think that the scales might be t uh, tilted towards the defense? You know, it really it really depends on what the jurors are looking at. You know, in a vacuum, I guess possibly the evidence is circumstantial enough that somebody might have doubt. But they're sitting there in the courtroom watching Alex Murdoch every day. And they've had the opportunity, um, even though he's a lawyer, he decided to speak to the police three times. And it's though to me, it's those interviews and his behavior and demeanor and motive kind of to figure out what's going on during those interviews. I mean, if you were innocent and your wife and son were killed, I imagine you'd be a little bit, um, I guess, more assertive in trying to find trying to find uh, find out who did this. You'd probably be trying to offer a reward billboards. His behavior is what I think pushes it over the line. So I do think the prosecution has done a good job. At first, I was a little bit confused about the, you know, about the money motive because it doesn't he didn't have life insurance policies on um, Maggie or Paul. So I'm like, OK, so that's not it. And so it's interesting that the state is, you know, wanted to present um, the insurance you know, situation where he the assisted suicide situation um, initially, because that's not clearly what that's clearly not what happened with Maggie and Paul. But it kind of does show just a level of depravity, what you're willing to do in order to get money. Yeah. On top yeah. of all. And just a lifetime of fraud, basically. And this is somebody who I have very little patience for, quite honestly, because there's people who in this world who 
haven't had opportunities or the privilege of being able to make an honest living, you know, without having to climb out of a hole. He had everything. All he had to do was just keep it steady. Yeah. He's so yeah. greedy, but he's so greedy. And he, yeah. he's got so out of control. I saw he said he spent $50,000 a week on drugs. Okay. Wow. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But that's how? Yeah. How? For just yourself, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm doing the math. And I'm like, I don't think that's yeah. possible. But, I don't you know, know what kind of boutique drugs he was taking. But yeah, that seems like an awful lot of money. Um, yeah. Let's, let's yeah. get into this motive thing, though, because this has always troubled me. And, and and we've talked about this before on the show, and I know everybody's discussing it, but we always say the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive, right? That's not an element of the crime. They don't have to prove the why, but it's so important and it's so important to jurors. And it's so important, especially in a case like this, where you're talking about a man murdering his own wife and child. Why would he do that? What would drive him to do that? And at first, like you said, the prosecution's theory seemed to have been well, look, it, he was in all sorts of financial trouble. But then you make the excellent point of, well, then how does killing his wife and child solve any of those problems? It's not like he was going to get some big financial windfall from their deaths that would have solved his financial problems. It just, it to me, it it, it solves nothing. And therefore, I, I have a hard time connecting the dots to say that that's the motive. What are your thoughts? Have they presented a better motive? Do you have ideas on a better motive? I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. So I think it's kind of like <clears throat> it's like um, one step away from money being the motive. We're looking at him getting a windfall positive. But we know at the time that he's facing a lawsuit from, from the boating accident where yeah. his, his son's accused of killing this girl and that he had already used the umbrella policy, you know, stealing from his um, deceased um, housemaid. Um, so he knew that if he lost that lawsuit, that he would be, you know, that I think they were asking for more than $50 million or some, you know, yeah. they wanted a lot of money. He didn't have the money. I knew, I know that there had been an order signed for them to start mediation in the case. So my, so I was trying to think to myself, what would get, what would get Alex Murdoch, who's not known to be like particularly violent or angry, what would get him so mad to the point where he would actually just like shoot, you know, shoot his son and wife. I don't think there was a hitman, which I know people talk about too. I don't think there was a hitman because his alibi would have been way better. If they, if he had hired a hitman, he'd be out of town. He wouldn't True. just be like, yeah. True. So I don't, if, I don't think there was, if if he was in on it, if he, if was, he was in, in on, on the hit, in hitman, you're right. He would have been. He we would have seen videotape of him. Yeah, playing. He would have had receipts. He would have had playing receipts. the slots at some casino outside of town or something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what I think happened was I think that the son had been facing a lot of bullying, Paul, um, amongst his own peers and family members for like not family members, but more distant family for what was going on in the case. I think they had blamed, tried to blame one of his friends. The dad really wanted his son to face no consequences as a result of what I think he did. You know, it, it seems as though he did, according to all the witnesses. I think it's possible that the son and the mom, um, or at least the son, Paul, was confronted his father about wanting the entire thing to be over with and wanting to take responsibility. Maybe. And, and the, to me, that's the only thing someone suggested. Oh, maybe they confronted him about his drug use. Well, he thinks he's a good liar, so he would find a way right. to burn my drugs. I think the only way that he could get angry enough at them that they could how that they something that would really upset him would be putting him in a situation where he's now even farther in the hole. Yeah. And if his son, and, and, yeah, if his son <clears throat> wanted him, wanted to say that, he would have to kill him so he didn't say it. Right. And that's an argument 
And, and, and I don't know if there's evidence that that exists, but at least that argument makes sense to me as far as, okay, now I understand why he would want to kill them. But until now, and, it, and even, even with what we have, and it seems like the prosecution, like you said, has kind of not pivoted so much as just backed off of that original theory. The best I think they have going for them so far is that no one knew what this man was capable of, right? Is that he had, you know, been a drug addict for 20 years and his best friend didn't know about it. Therefore, his best friend doesn't know him and doesn't know what he's capable of. He embezzled millions of dollars uh, from his law firm and his best, uh, you know, professional friends had no idea. Therefore, they don't know what this man is and they don't know what he's capable of. Is seems to be the best that they're doing so far with the prosecution is to explain why the inexplicable essentially would happen, why he would kill his wife and family. But at least the theory that you're presenting makes sense as far as why he would be motivated to target them. I'll build it um, out. I can build it out more real quick because I just want yeah, to say please. something that I was really kind of, so as somebody who I really love animals, um, I'm an animal advocate. And when I heard that he would, Earlier in the day, the day that, that Paul and Maggie were killed, that he said that he was driving around his property with Paul, planting corn so that the doves would come, um, presumably so they could shoot them. Um, that That's, you know, I know there's hunters out there. I'm not trying to, you know, disrespect hunters. But there's something about his attitude about the how expendable other people and things are for his benefit. Mm-hmm. That plus a drug problem. I don't know. I mean, I just think he's quick with the gun. He has a lot of guns. He's very comfortable shooting. And it's like if you give somebody five drinks and you give them a gun, I mean, I don't know. They might be more likely to shoot. Yeah. And I think once you shoot your kid and your wife's there, what are you going to do? I mean, I think it was all panic. Yeah. I think yeah. you can't. I don't think at, it was- at a certain point, maybe the maybe whoever got shot first, the second one was panic. Sure. You know, somebody stumbled upon it. I don't know. But again, it. I mean, as horrible as a human being as he is, I think. It's difficult for me, and I think it'll probably be difficult for jurors to wrap their heads around as horrible as a human as he may have been. This is his wife and child. I mean, this isn't yeah. his his the, his you know this isn't the 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 law partner who confronted him about the the where's all the money gone or something. This is his wife and child, and it just is so, I guess, disturbing at its core that you want some some sort of reason that you can wrap your head around. Um, let's get though that you kind of alluded to this about the whole uh, defense going with this um, drug uh, retribution narrative and all of that. And, and and the I don't know if the defense was being you know clever in the way that they opened the door to this and the judge is now allowing some of this testimony in about the insurance fraud and they feel that that will somehow allow them to get into some of their their theories on him you know owing drug money, but. To me, um, that's not a bad argument for the defense is to say, listen, this guy, you're right. He was in all sorts of financial trouble. And in fact, he owed a whole bunch of money to some really bad guys who are not going to kill him because that's the guy that owes the money. But they're going to send a message to him by killing the wife and child. I can kind of wrap my head around that. And it fits into, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, the idea that there was two weapons used, which is so bizarre to me and it's been the part that i've had uh struggled with a lot is you're telling me that he's he switched weapons in the middle of this and you're you're, you're right like a shotgun is not a, a quiet weapon so he's attracting attention and then he switches guns to kill the other person or 
He doesn't attract too, attention. He's, or, a hunting, he's on a hunting property. He's used to being able no, to No, but shoot. I'm saying the, the attention of, of the wife or the child, oh, right? Oh, okay, uh, the the okay. other person. Um, or two separate people with two separate guns committed a, a hit. I, I, I mean, am I too far out there or what do you think? Here's my, here's my problem. I, I really feel like this guy, like Alex Murdoch, has gotten away with everything for his whole life. Like, yeah. like really, like just used to that. My daddy, you know, we know mayor and blah, 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 police chief enough already. It's only because he's a white male. And I'm saying this now. It's only because he's a white male that he's not facing the death penalty, in my opinion. I swear to God, I really feel. And the only reason I feel like we're willing to give him, not me, because I'm turning into a prosecutor because I have no patience for him. Um, <laughs> I really don't. But with, like we give a white a white professional man the benefit of the doubt in a way that we don't give young black males the benefit of the doubt. We can't imagine this man doing this, whereas we can imagine someone who we're used to seeing in mugshots on the cover of, you know, on the cover of newspapers do it. It, it seems really depraved. His behavior during those three interviews is what I want to go back to, though. That, I mean, so, yeah, the defense may be able to get somewhere with that, with the with the insurance and all of that. But I'm like, it, he didn't do this for insurance. So it kind of they're answering. A, they would be defending something that the state's not even holding on to now. Yeah. And yeah. at that point, I'm kind of like they're done with that. They may, they may not even argue it. So I don't know the defense. I don't want to be his lawyer is all I can really say. I mean, I, I don't I, I would not be. <laughs> I would not be a great lawyer for him because I think he's full of shit um, yeah. and, I, and I'm sick of it. And I'm what, yeah. somebody just imagine same guy, his his daughter goes missing. He would be on the news. He'd be the same person on yeah. the news, you know, very assertive, telling the police to do a better job. Find my daughter. Yeah, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. Well, as we're speaking, uh, it sounds like they be, are coming close to the end of the prosecution's case. Who knows how much of a defense the defense is going to put on? I know there's speculation he may even take the stand. I'd be really surprised by that. But but by the time this comes out, we may be towards the end of this case. So we'll continue to watch it and um, have follow-up. And I'm sure that it will have a, uh, a, a ending to it that will have a lot for us to discuss. Let's move on now to Louisville, Kentucky, where prosecutors will make a second attempt to convict former Kentucky police officer Brett Hankinson for his actions in the raid that ended in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. During the execution of a warrant, after officers broke the door off its hinges, Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired his gun once, striking Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly in the thigh. The police responded by firing several shots, striking Taylor five times. Hankison uh, allegedly shot 10 rounds blindly into the apartment. The most recent federal charges allege that Hankison uh, endangered Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend along with her neighbors when he fired into Taylor's apartment. Notably, none of the shots fired by Hankison uh, struck Brianna Taylor. However, he is the only officer to face charges in the raid after the two other responding officers were found justified in discharging their weapons after Taylor's boyfriend shot at them. Hankison uh, was previously acquitted on state charges related to the endangerment of Taylor's neighbors. Hankinson's upcoming trial will be moved back by two months after the defense requested more time to evaluate the evidence handed over by federal prosecutors. His trial is scheduled for October 30th. Um, so, Rachel, what's your opinion on, on prosecutors uh, opting to try uh, this officer again? And, and talk to us, too, about the, the possible issues of double jeopardy here. 
So because they're two different jurisdictions, two different court systems, the federal system is not at all connected to the state system. You can be charged in both places, you know, as decent human beings. So so that's the law. But there's a lot right. of laws that kind of don't make sense. And when you think about resources, to, you know, to prosecute somebody twice seems, you know, like a waste of resources. Um, right. You know, when you're acquitted, and I imagine it's the same in is it Kentucky that I, I that there's 12 jurors that found him not guilty. Um, so yeah, they're going to go, they're going to try him in federal court. I, I I think it's for optics possibly. I know yeah. that they can, I just don't really see why at that point that you would, um, except yeah. for you're so disgusted by their behavior that you want everyone to know. Like I remember the Ahmad Arbery case. They, I believe that they charged the McMichael father's son. They also charged them with like hate crimes and stuff in federal court. And they'd already been convicted in state court. So yeah, right. they can do that. Um, and Apparently, if you you know if, if it's a media case and it, it makes sense for optics to keep going, um, they will. It's yeah. kind of sad, kind of sad to me though because I do know how many there's every single day there's you know people in positions of power. Yeah, being corrupt and no one's doing anything about it. So I'm glad right. there's against him right. twice. And it's it also it would be really unfortunate if this were, like you said, just entirely politically motivated, that they just want to kind of make a point that they have a problem with this as well. I mean, I, you know, however you felt that trial turned out the first time around, you know, whether you agree with the verdict or not, the guy had his day in court. And, and, and there was no one saying that that wasn't a fully fleshed out and well done prosecution. It's just they didn't appear to have the case that they thought that they did. And now to put this man through this whole thing again, merely because, like you said, if it is true that they're doing it for the purpose of optics, uh, does not seem like a wise use of resources at the very least to me. Yeah, so but talk to me about. I was going to say it's disrespectful to the jurors to their decision, unless, yeah. unless there's new evidence. Unless there's, and then that's the thing. Unless right. there's new evidence that they've somehow come up with in between then and now. But twelve jurors said something, and you know they said he's not guilty. That the state didn't meet their burden. Yeah not additional evidence to then disrespect their verdict and then try it again. Yeah, no, 100%. And it would have to be some pretty convincing new evidence too. I mean, it would have to be something like, you know, somebody changed their testimony or, or you know, forensics that they just didn't have before or something like that. But I haven't heard anything like that. Maybe, that. maybe it does exist, but at this point, it does seem a little confusing and perhaps even troubling. But talk to me about, um, you know, this is almost like a retrial. You've got all of this sworn testimony from people on a first trial. Who does that benefit the second time around? Um, do you think it, it, it tilts in the favor of the prosecution or the defense in the fact that they have all of these prior statements that they might be able to use? Since he was acquitted? Um, I would yeah, say that, the, the, benefit, that benefits the defense because I'm going to they better stick to their story. They better not change it yeah. the second time around because I've got you. Um, yeah. I don't know if a new witness that they had like a, a new witness come in. Who knows? But they everybody who testified in the first trial is going to have to say the same thing. Yeah. And that's the point I was trying to make is that, yeah. you know, it, they better review every word that they said because anything that changes becomes now a prior inconsistent statement that any good defense attorney like yourself is going to chop them apart with on cross-examination. So it, yeah, I don't know how, unless you, like you said, there's some sort of new smoking gun we don't know about. It seems like it's going to be an even more difficult kind of tight uh, wire act that they're going to have to do to put this prosecution on. And just ultimately, what is the goal? So these are the, these are the questions I have also with this Trump prosecution coming up. So let's just say you, you indict this guy and then you convict him. 
what do we want from him? What would be the best restore? What is punishment in relation to him? What do we want from him? I think a lot of us just want like an apology, you know, an apology, some like humility. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that would be better than putting him in prison since he is somebody, unless he has a bunch of prior offenses, you know, do I, do we really want to prosecute him? Right. And I'm somebody who doesn't believe, who doesn't believe that what they did, you know, to Brianna Taylor, it's horrific to come into someone's house and do anything like that. Um, and so I'm not condoning it whatsoever. I just, at this point, what is, what is the point? What's the message being sent? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I, I find it a little, uh, troubling myself. Let's move on to our final case out of Kenosha County, Wisconsin. After nearly seven hours of deliberation, a jury has convicted Mark Jensen of first-degree intentional homicide in the 1998 death of his wife, Julie Jensen. Mark was originally convicted for the murder of his wife 15 years ago in 2008. However, a Supreme Court ruling overturned his conviction after a controversial piece of evidence allowed in the prosecution's favor violated, uh, was found to have violated Mark's constitutional rights. The same special prosecutor that gained Mark's conviction led the state's case in the second trial, which is interesting to me. Though that pivotal piece still there and still still (laughs) gunning for him, though that pivotal piece of evidence, which was a letter penned by Mark's late wife, Julie, was not allowed in as evidence. The letter was given to a neighbor of the Jensen's and alleged that if anything happens to me, quote unquote, her husband, Mark, quote, would be my first suspect. Pretty, pretty damning stuff. Prosecutors allege that Mark poisoned his wife with antifreeze before suffocating her on the bed in their pleasant prairie home. The state claimed Mark's motive in the in the crime was to get his wife out of the way in order to continue an affair with a woman whom he later married after Julie's death. Mark's defense contended that the marriage was deeply troubled with infidelity on both sides and cited Julie's documented depression as eventually leading to her suicide. In closing, the defense argued that the prosecution's case was based on a lie from the informant Aaron Dillard, an admitted con man facing 10 years in prison on probation violations when he met Jensen in 2007 in the Kenosha County Jail. Dillard testified that Jensen confessed to poisoning Julie Jensen with antifreeze, drugging her, and smothering her. The defense said Dillard only knew case details because he read Jensen's case files. The jury of six men and six women ultimately disagreed with uh, disagreed, and the judge promptly revoked Mark Jensen's bond after the verdict. He is set to appear for sentencing April 14th and faces life in prison for the murder charge. All right, Rachel, jump right in. It's been 25 years. Were you surprised by this conviction that they were no. able to secure it even without the letter? No, again, it's so sad that, you know, again, I, we, the jurors are supposed to look at the burden of proof. Right. But we know that they're just people just like us and we're attorneys. And sometimes we don't, you know, we're unable to really gain perspective. You look at the guy. If you just look at him. <laughs> it's like the op- the way that he looked at the jury, his, the, everything about the optics of him in a courtroom with the jurors. I could have told you from the second that they went in there, it's over. <laughs> I mean, he looked, he looks the part. He looks like, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if there's a dateline about it, but I mean, I'm sure he just looks the part and he kept he throughout the entire case, the way that he would kind of like, mm, he would like smirk and do these weird things. Yeah. Honestly. Certainly <laughs> like, not doing himself any favors. With no. And it's sad yeah. because it, once a, if a juror doesn't like you, they don't want to believe you. Yeah, it's true. It is true. I mean, you, 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 I know that you're, you're, 
you're joking to some extent, but it's absolutely true that they they are human. Yeah, they they are human, and if they find a person to be dislikable just by themselves, they're going to look for things that kind of you know. Uh, it's almost like confirmation bias. They're going to look for things that make that pe- per- person guilty. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um. So. But do I think there were tons of evidence? No, but we've all seen too many datelines where the, yeah. where the husband kills the wife. Then we had the kid's friend and the kid's friend's mom testify yeah. during that case where they were talking about like how um, I guess how they had gone over to their house and the kid had said that, you know, the mom was sick that morning. There was like some pretty. Yeah. I don't know why a kid would say that. So. Well. Well, to me, the, the the interest one of the interesting things is so so they had this incredibly um, powerful piece of evidence the first time around, which is her letter. Which is, I mean, I don't know how you get around that as the defense. And they they kick it out. The appellate court kicks it out. Which, you know, we could have a whole discussion on whether or not a, that was right. But then they they seem to hitch their train to this jailhouse informant the second time around, which is also a controversial. Uh, kind of piece of evidence and that you're this guy is saying yeah he confessed to me the whole thing oh and by the way i'm i'm also a felon i've got all sorts of problems i'm i'm not trustworthy i mean do you think they're creating appellate issues for themselves again here with this jailhouse informant and what are your thoughts on jailhouse informants you know in general i feel like a jailhouse informant is going to be considered just from the second they come out there in chains (laughs) Because they're not, they don't get to get dressed out like, you know, like a defendant. Right. I feel like people are 25% likely to take their word. So I feel like you're already starting at a point where you are, you have very little credibility with the jury. Um, I mean, everyone knows, he wanted a field trip. If I'm a, if I'm a defense attorney, this guy wanted a field trip. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's closer to his loved ones now. I don't know if he's got a friend in the jail. I don't know what's going on, but he got to have like a, you know, he was, otherwise he'd just be sitting in his cell. So I'm glad he right. came here to say he, he went through the guy's files and reports by himself. I mean, I would destroy the jailhouse informant. So, no, I don't think that, that that's a particularly strong witness. But I do think that when you want to believe the state yeah, and you've got people, you've got somebody up there saying it, you will believe him. Yeah. So really, yeah. The, pro- the problem the, for me, the problem is, is how strong is the story from the begin for defense attorneys? If the state's story from the beginning is incredibly strong. And you don't have another strong story, which is I know it looks like the defense tried to say it was a suicide. So they created like a instead of just saying it could have been anything else, they wanted a competing story. Right. If there's no evidence, there's no evidence. I'm a a defense attorney and I will go to trial, but I'm not a good liar. I'm really not. And some attorneys might be. I like to think that I'm just as honorable as a prosecutor who wears a pin. And, you know, like they're they're not any more truthful than I am when a client when a client's case seems to be like very difficult to beat at a trial. You know, I sometimes accountability makes sense and saves your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a conversation that I often have. Uh, The hardest part for me are people who don't want to be on it. Like not like man up, but I mean, if you're going to go out there and do this, if you're going to shoot your kid in the head five times, Alex Murdoch, whatever you did, you blow his brains out. To be to now say that like oh, no, no, I didn't do it it wasn't me I mean man up like <laughs> right I just don't right. have much patience for I don't have much patience yeah. for but there are a lot of people that get charged with you know horrible charges that are that drove people somewhere or that were just standing there and those are the people that I like to represent because they get swept up um, right in this but when you have 
there, there was another suspect all this time. I guess I would if I were Mark Jensen's defense attorney, I, I guess what I would do is probably spend a lot of time talking about um, the confirmation bias that from the beginning they were just really looking at him. Yeah. And no- but you, 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 you make a really good point that I always try to drive home is that you got to present a bad guy to the jurors. If it's not your guy, if it's not the guy sitting next to you, and, you, and your defense is my guy didn't do it. Not that it was in self-defense or there were justified reasons for what took place and all that. But if you're saying my guy did not do this thing, you got to give him something else. And you're right. If it if if it's a lame story and you don't have much evidence to back it up, then now they're just choosing between two narratives here and they're not going to choose yours. And that's a, a failing a failing strategy. Yeah. And, and when you have no evidence to support your defense theory, which is sometimes the case... If you have to go to trial and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to resolve their case. I mean, you, yeah, you're getting up there kind of knowing that you don't, I mean, you have to, you have to convince yourself that you're going to win. So there's no yeah. time I went into like the ring. I could like Mike Tyson walking into the ring and thinking he's going to get knocked out. No, like you go in there ready to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like right. I'm ready to go. And I believe what, <clears throat> believe what I'm about to say, but it, at the same time, I mean, the truth is the truth is the truth. Yeah. And jurors usually don't want to give us the benefit of the doubt. So I usually put my clients on the stand in those situations. If I believe if, if they can get up there and hold their own is the best way to create that doubt. Yeah. If, 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 and sometimes that's all you've, you're left with. Right. Um, one last thought I, I had on this. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Um, this is 25 years, right? A lot of it. Talk about resources, retrying this man, going all the way up to the Supreme Court, coming all the way back down. Do you think they would have put all of this effort into retrying this man if it wasn't for the letter? And even though the letter didn't come in, I think that letter was so compelling to the prosecutors, and especially that this is the same prosecutor trying him again. They were so convinced of this man's guilt based upon that letter that even without the letter, they're willing to put on this retrial again. If that letter didn't exist, do you think we'd be sitting here talking about a retrial on this case? No, no. Yeah. I, don't, I think he would have been acquitted the first time, possibly. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I just, I, I think that they, the, ironically enough, this case really still stood on the idea that there was that letter, even though it didn't play a role, if that, that makes that any kind passion, of sense. The passion behind the story that yeah. they tell you know, rooted in what they believe is the truth. I mean, I feel like when someone believes what they're saying, yeah, because yeah. they've been passionate about it for 25 years, um, like I don't care what the defense says. I know, you know, I'm a, it's like a train. I'm going forward. I'm not stopping. Yeah. And the, the jurors feel that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think that I certainly don't think they would have tri- retried him. Um, but I think you're right that probably just that, that, that air of confidence knowing you have a guilty man in that room because you have this piece of evidence that you can't may not be able to share, but you know that it exists might have been what carried the day. Um, Rachel, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? That's a good question. I guess they can they can check me out. They can check me out on um, Instagram. I have a I have a professional Instagram, but I'm more fun on my like personal one because I kind of mix everything. So it's Rachel Kaufman. Um I think it's underscore Rachel Kaufman underscore possibly, but you check it out. Um, lots of dog stuff. I work with canine cellmates, which is something we can talk about on another podcast, but I, I, um, I love to post about dogs and um, I like to hold the state accountable on my personal accounts in case they're looking because they are sometimes. So um, 
we have lots to talk about more, but um, yeah. thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, of course. And we'll definitely check out your your Instagram. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ and check out my website at joshuaritter.com. And you can find our Cyberbar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.